0: This podcast was created to educate listeners on the experiences of diverse individuals. However, all opinions expressed by the host or guests do not reflect the overall standing of Tarleton Radio or Tarleton State University.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to Making Space a Diversity Dialogue. I'm your host, Cole, and this is a bi-weekly podcast where together we'll have questions answered about socially sensitive topics while learning how to create lasting relationships with diverse people. This episode is another one of those bonus episodes brought to us by our partnership with the Office of Diversity, Inclusion, and International Programs at Tarleton State University. This month's live diversity dialogue hosted on Tarleton State University's campus is about food insecurity and its relation with Indigenous people. The presentation is done by Emily Van Kirk, someone you might remember from previous episodes. This time, they will be presenting the information. Now, of course, Emily is not Indigenous. However, they have done a lot of research prior to this presentation. Of course, they don't speak directly for Indigenous experiences. However, they can speak to the research they've done um, and all the resources and such that they are going to offer, which, of course, I will include in the description. Without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and let them take over. This is a Zoom audio recording, so bear with us on the audio quality, unfortunately, folks. But I think it's worth it to hear this very important information. So here is the presentation done on food insecurity as it relates to Indigenous folks. Here today to talk about food and
2: shelter insecurity, Uh, particularly as it impacts indigenous folks in the USA. I had like some very long verbiage here initially, indigenous populations in the United States, but it's a lot to get a mouth around. So indigenous folks in the USA. And this is brought to you of course, by diversity inclusion and international programs out of Tarleton State University. If you're seeing this and you wanna give us some feedback that you're participating, there's a QR code on the screen that'll lead you to a form where you can give us an attendance or you could also just log your attendance via text and sync so with no further ado let's go ahead and jump in when we talk about the words food and shelter food and shelter those are some base needs so really I'd be interested to know what that brings up for you for me it brings up a lot of things related to safety and family and home right Um, A lot of major holidays are celebrated with food and shelter is honestly one of those base needs that is so essential that we don't even think about it. We assume that people have shelter 99% of the time. It's just something that's taken as granted. People have a place to sleep. People have a reliable, warm place to go home to. So when we think about food and shelter, We need to remember that these are things that are integral to someone's life and experience, that they're essential to them being able to carry on and do other things, be successful, have full, creative, rich lives, that these are minimum standards. So today we're going to talk a little bit about food and shelter and security in the USA. And then we're going to talk specifically about how it impacts um, that acronym. There is American Indian, Alaskan Native, and then indigenous people throughout. I'm going to prefer using the term indigenous because that's preferred language overall, as far as I can tell in my reading. However, in the more technical uh, data that I could find, it seemed like they tended to use American Indian and Alaskan native. However, whenever I found indigenous folks talking about their own issues, they seemed to prefer using the terms native or indigenous. So out of respect for that, that's the term I'm going to tend to use. However, when looking at the research, you see the AI, AN quite frequently. And Then we're gonna talk a little bit about some resources addressing these issues. So a couple of expectations. If you're there in Zoom land or face-to-face, go ahead and pop into the chat or let Kennedy know if you have a question. But we're gonna talk a little bit about what food and shelter insecurity really mean, because those can be kind of vague terms, particularly if you're not deeply engaged with these topics on the regular. We're gonna talk about how many people, not just uh, indigenous people, but people in general are living with food and shelter insecurity, because that can be kind of something that we don't really recognize, particularly because it's not something that people are always very open about. And then we're gonna talk about how many indigenous folks do we think are living in the United States and how many might be potentially impacted. So when we think about this issue, a lot of times there's almost this idea that we don't have a whole ton of people who might be directly impacted by food insecurity or shelter insecurity. And then when you talk about indigenous folks, we almost get the idea that there might not be a whole lot of indigenous folks to be directly impacted. So when you talk about an issue that people already perceive as not directly impacting a whole large slice of folks, and then you take a population that people perceive as not being very large, and you say it directly impacts these people, significantly, and you say, oh, that's not a very significant population, it's important to kind of look at the numbers and see, well, actually, this is a significant issue for a significant population, and honestly, if one kid goes to bed hungry, that's one kid too much for me. So let's talk a little bit about food and shelter and security in the U.S. First, helps to really know what we're talking about. So when we talk about food insecurity, I'm not talking strictly about somebody who just literally cannot put hand to mouth, does not have food to eat every single day, starving to death. Food insecurity refers to a lack of consistent access to enough nutritious food for an active, healthy life. So that's really specifically phrased. A lot of times when we think about hunger, when we think about lack of food, we think about the total absence of food but it's more complex than that. If you're living off of nothing but ramen because you can't afford anything else and buying more nutritious food would keep you from being able to pay your rent, you may be food insecure and that's okay. Many people are. Really what it is 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 a position in which you cannot consistently provide yourself with enough nutritious food for an active healthy life and it impacts a lot of folks. Shelter insecurity is similarly more complex than what we might initially think. So typically when we think of issues regarding housing, we think of people being literally homeless. They have nowhere to call home at night. They're living unsheltered, possibly on the streets. And that's a very bleak reality that affects millions of people. However, Shelter insecurity is actually a multi-dimensional umbrella term, which includes homelessness, literal unhousedness, an excessive housing cost burden. So, So when your rent or other housing costs are so high that it makes it difficult for you to pay your other costs of living, residential instability, evictions, other forced moves, being put in a position where you have to be able to live with friends or family to even be able to afford the cost of rent, or other housing costs such as doubling up, right? Overcrowding, being forced to live in substandard poor quality housing because it's all you can afford or all that's available, or living in neighborhoods that are unsafe and lack access to critical amenities. So it's not just about the literal availability of a roof over your head, but whether that roof is safe, whether you can rely on being able to afford access to that roof the next month, Um, And whether or not it puts you in a position where you're constantly afraid, whether or not you have to choose between eating or keeping that roof over your head. So when you look at it this way, it becomes obvious that food and shelter insecurity can be a lot broader than we might initially imagine. So like I said, it's more widespread than you may think. And it has broad impacts and effects on all parts of life, including some substantial negative impacts on health outcomes for individuals, particularly children brought up in these environments. In 2019, food insecurity impacted about 10.5% of people, which is actually a decline from a high of 14.9% in 2011. So in the general American populace, we're kind of on a decline there. However, a lack of a true standard measurement for shelter insecurity, since it's such a big umbrella term, actually makes it really difficult to assess. However, approximately 567,715 people were literally homeless in 2019. So that's just one metric of shelter insecurity, but that's quite high. And that's just the general population. So that's a little bit of a barometer for what we're looking at with the general population. And that's a lot of people. So I just wanna challenge you here for a moment. Have you or someone you cared about ever experienced food or shelter insecurity? And are you familiar with the local resources? would you be able to navigate your way to accessing them if you needed care or support? Personally, um, when my personal experience with food insecurity occurred, if it hadn't been for the resources available at Tarleton, I would have gone without food for significant amounts of time. And that was pre as even having a Tarleton food pantry. Without community resources, many people would be in pretty dire straits. So we talked about the general population, let's put this in a little bit more context, right? So approximately, and I practiced reading this number, I swear. <laughs> Ooh, we have a student who wants to comment. Yes, please. I'd love to hear.
3: So uh, one thing I know is that Talton does have like the special uh, food program, which I believe is like here in the student center. And I think you can even donate like a uh, dining bucks or whatever if you don't use these services to uh, provide food for those who need it.
2: Excellent. Yeah, I've heard that you're able to return any of your unused dining dollars um, and donate some of that food money to the Purple Pantry and to other or other programs at the end of the semester. That's a great, great program. And the Purple Pantry has recently expanded their resources to more than just food, too, which I think is really, really nifty. Thank you. Anybody else?
0: Hello. <laughs> so I think it just kind of goes back to the question of uh, I think that there is degrees of uh, food insecurity and even shelter insecurity because I think that our conception of shelter insecurity is like okay you're completely destitute but sometimes it's like this like chronic situation for some folks that I have personal experience but it has been like I'm out in the street but I am just I have I have had just a lack of stability and I had to like, you know, live with, uh, with a friend for a while while I was in between jobs and trying to figure that out. Uh, but having that, and it was you, Emily, who conceptualized it for me a couple of years ago when you talked about that it is not a like, literally not to use this uh, crudely, but it either a feast or famine when it comes to uh, experiencing either housing insecurity, shelter insecurity or food insecurity. So, That's something I learned from you and I'm very thankful for that.
2: Thank you for sharing that. And you make a really good point. So I was homeless for about three or four months during my sophomore year of college because I wasn't welcome um, at my family home. And so I lived out of my truck and hopped from couch to couch in residential living and learning communities. Um, And that's, that's a very common practice. You'll see people couch surfing and so people don't consider themselves homeless or they don't consider themselves unhoused, but that's definitely considered shelter and security. Or you'll see people staying with family and doubling up or you'll see people um, just in really fragile positions and that may not be homelessness, but it's definitely vulnerability to the potential of homelessness and so that's that's calculated under that shelter and stability. So thank you so much. And I can't see the um, the room. So please feel free to let me know whenever anybody has a comment. I appreciate y'all and I don't wanna move y'all past discussion at any point. Um, but yeah, no, and so it gets really complicated and kind of muddy because like many other issues, we sometimes have this concept of the most extreme version of things. And that's what we see and what we look for. We don't recognize what people might be experiencing because it doesn't look like the extreme version we're looking for in our head. Um, And people don't want you to know when they're hungry. People don't want you to know when they don't have a safe place to sleep. People are are usually very proud, right? They don't wanna look for help. But in the context of indigenous folks, I think it's really important to recognize uh, the sizes of the populations involved. So approximately, 328,239,523 328,239,523 people are living in the United States, per the and per the 2010 census, because the 2021 isn't out yet for me to use, um, about 0.9% of the population, or 2.9 million people identified their only race as American Indian or Alaskan Native, that's where that AIAN comes in, while 1.7% of the US population or 5.2 million people identified um, AI and as part of their race or in combination as their only race or in combination with another race. So as this was an increase since 2000, it's anticipated that it will actually grow in the future. And historically, there are some reasons to actually believe that this may even be um lower than than it would be strictly true so we we don't necessarily have a great accurate count or or number of the number of indigenous folks living in the united states but this can give you a pretty good idea that proportionately there's just not a ton but there's more than you may have expected right it's a smaller percentage of the population compared to many of the other um, ethnic populations within the United States. However, um, it's important to also note that there are 574 federally recognized Indian nations within the United States. Only 22% of uh, indigenous folks are living on tribal lands, and most live in other communities. And often data about folks within these identity groups can be hard to find as it is subsumed into other categories or labeled under other terms, further contributing to their erasure. So something that I noticed um, within the research for this project was just how hard it was to find, um, what's the word I'm looking for, disaggregated data about these groups that didn't come strictly just from um, organizations like the National Congress on American Indians, which is the NCIA up there that is describing the number of federally recognized Indian nations. So the picture you'll see here um, on the side I normally don't reference politics, but I thought this image was so funny and it's provoked a lot, a not funny, haha, but funny, sad, funny, messed up. But um, recently CNN got themselves in quite a bit of hot water with indigenous folks around the country because in an exit poll about some, some political voting stuff, they labeled a, a bunch of people as just something else. And this really kind of earmarks the difficulty in getting information about this population because they're kind of just thrown together under. That's a bit of a tangent but I wanted to share that with you so if you go to learn more about the difficulties facing these, these individuals, these nations, these groups, you may run into this. But historically, Indigenous folks have been removed from their ancestral lands repeatedly and has disrupted their ability to build stability. Examples can include the Indian Removal Act in 1830, otherwise known as the Trail of Tears, the General Allotment Act, better known as the Dawes Act, which converted communally held tribal lands into small individually owned lots and allowed the government to seize two thirds of reservation lands and redistribute their lands to white Americans, and the termination of more than a hundred tribal lands, tribal nations recognition, which placed them under state jurisdiction between 1945 and 1968, which contributed to the loss of millions of additional acres of tribal land and drove a push for indigenous relocation primarily to urban centers. So this kind of ties back to earlier where I mentioned that only 22% of indigenous folks actually live on uh, reservations or tribal lands. So a lot of times, and I'm, I'm gonna admit some fault here. There's a stereotype that I myself took part in that uh, indigenous and native folks live on reservations and that's where they are. And that's not true. And that they're um, kind of bound into these cultural areas. And really they're, they're, they're all over the place because they're people and people live everywhere. But they've been pushed into different areas and deprived of their cultural heritage, the cultural practices and moved away from where they've had access to perm- permaculture, agriculture, and deprived of land that they were supposed to be able to work and farm and have access to. Um, And the drive to urban centers between 1945 and 1968 has partially contributed to a real breakdown in infrastructure. So in 2017, more than one in five American Indian and Alaska Native people lived in poverty. Roughly one in 200 people who identified as American Indian and Alaska Native as their only race is homeless as of 2019. Some surveys I read indicated heavy use of strategies like doubling up in tribal communities to prevent literal homelessness. So they were still affected by the housing uh, insecurity, the shelter insecurity, but within communities they were using other practices to prevent the literal homelessness. So it sometimes gets overlooked. However, designated homeless services were often less common in tribal areas. One source noted that while homelessness affects nearly all tribal areas they surveyed, only 11 of the 22 tribal areas visited had a shelter within their boundaries. Um, so there's there's a lack of available places for for them to send folks who do need that because there's a lack of resources in general. Oftentimes, uh, some of the tribal areas can even be described as lacking major resources such as running water electric in some cases. Food insecurity rates are also high for majority Indian, American Indian counties at greater than 20% and 60% of American Indian Amer- Alaskan Native majority counties experience it. So that's strikingly high. And those counties are not actually tribal lands. Those are talking about counties within america not tribal lands that just happen to have ethnic majorities so that's where it gets really interesting it's not even about the disparity in infrastructure because of the ways that they've been politically subjugated it's just disparity native american families are also 400 percent more likely than other u.s households to report not having enough to eat Many Native Americans still reside in protected reservations where there's barely enough land to grow their own food or hunt. But there's also little infrastructure and access to resources, as many reservations are considered food deserts, that is areas without access to fresh or healthy food. This is also really common um, in urban centers. You'll see this come up when you read about food insecurity in general, particularly in large urban centers where folks might have access to a convenience store or fast food, but they won't be able to access a good grocery store, have space to plant a garden, or otherwise provide for themselves. So you can get a whole bunch of junk food, but you can't get anything healthy. And that contributes to food insecurity because just because you're eating something doesn't mean you're eating well. So some of the ways that people have, have addressed this include encouraging the development of returns to traditional practices. And I wanted to ask y'all if y'all had seen any of this. Have you encountered this suggestion of education and traditional hunting, permaculture, and ag- agriculture to support uh, native and indigenous folks? And this is, this is your discussion question. So take plenty of time on this. And have you encountered the idea of permaculture um, in agriculture? Do you know what I mean by that? Because I'm happy to elaborate. I'm about to break full screen so I can copy this discussion into the chat for you, okay? So permaculture is a a style of agriculture where things are intended to kind of stay in place and grow in a a natural environment. Um, Working with nature instead of against nature, So the idea is to plant in a way that is reoccurring. Let me get you a dictionary definition as well, um, so that you're not just going off of my brain, but thank you for asking. It's something that came up quite a lot in the discussions. Yeah, the development of agricultural ecosystems intended to be sustainable and self-sufficient.
4: I was just gonna ask Emily, like the room, has anyone encountered any type of education really in um, shelter and food insecurity before this? Because I personally haven't. And so I definitely have not encountered any suggestions of like education in like tribal ways of traditional hunting and permaculture and agriculture, because I really didn't even have a lot of education on what food and shelter and security really meant.
2: Fair enough. I wasn't sure if I was going too far or not far enough when I was writing these discussion questions and I may have overshot my mark and I am open to that feedback. So if we want to talk about if you've ever talked about these concepts before, we absolutely can. Just make sure that everything gets repeated on a mic for everybody who has to see it later.
0: Thank you. Uh, I've never heard of anything like I think when I'm you know even yeah I'm trying to think of whether it was undergrad and even or even sociology courses where we learned about the stratification of food consumption um, as you were talking about earlier with the access to healthier food and cheaper food right like what does that look like but it had never had a, a different lens that was from a dominant part of society it was always the organic versus inorganic Uh, foods and the way they're grown and that was it that was the the depth of layer there was nothing else it was still used at a traditional supermarket traditional super HEB versus whole foods like that was the understanding that I got even in this study of sociology so it was never beyond that dominant narrative so that makes sense
3: so I haven't necessarily heard this all in depth but like growing up in Texas and uh, I had a lot of friends who would their families would like go hunting or fishing instead of buying from the grocery store just because it was cheaper and more efficient um so I guess in a sense like I've always understood as that is a cheaper alternative but I haven't really got an in-depth discussion about food insecurity. Awesome
2: thank you. Anyone else? So the reason I specifically brought this up is because when I was doing the reading, I encountered like three different articles where groups of indigenous folks were working on either teaching folks traditional knowledge about planting and permaculture and agriculture so that groups could grow their own food to supplement food insecurity in their communities or teaching folks traditional knowledge about hunting and gathering for the same purpose. So I may be a little out of depth for our conversation today, and I apologize, but I thought it was really fascinating because it had never occurred to me. But then when I started looking at it in the context of the earlier slides where we were talking about their removals from their traditional lands, their traditional practices, it made a lot of sense. We we took people from their lands, we removed them from their access to traditional foods, and now they're put in places where they have in positions where they're um, deprived from access to ways they would have supported themselves to begin with and they're also facing all kinds of other obstacles. So I thought it was really fascinating the ways that folks were attempting to adapt to overcome those difficulties, particularly by integrating permaculture because as a kid who grew up on a farm. And as somebody working at an ag school, I've seen the the movement into permaculture and agricultural in general as really fascinating. So a way of trying to make ag more sustainable across the board. And it's also interesting because by reconnecting with some of those practices, it's a way for folks to try to reconnect with their cultures or it could be. I don't intend to speak for any indigenous folks because I can't, I don't know anything about being indigenous and I'm not an indigenous person. But I would assume that being able to reconnect with some of those practices might be able, might be a way they might be able to reconnect with their cultures. And then also I I had read an article um, a few few months ago that I wanted to share with y'all or talk to y'all about a little bit further. So this is kind of my leading question to that because there was a really interesting situation that happened in 2017 where a young man by the name of Chris Apisinguk, whose last name I probably just butchered, was 16 years old and he went on a hunt with his family. He's an Alaskan native and he and his family uh, traditionally hunt seal, walrus and whale for subsistence hunting. And he caught a 57 foot whale at 16 years old. It was a huge catch. And it was a big deal. And if it wasn't for the whale, walrus, and seal that he and the members of his community hunt, they would not survive. But this young man has been viciously digitally harassed for the last several years. So I just wanted to ask y'all what y'all thought about situations like that. Um, and the position it put folks in, particularly considering the circumstances that uh, folks like Chris likely face. I'm going to drop this question in the chat as well.
0: I was just saying, what what did they harass him for?
2: For killing a whale, it was perfectly oh. legal. Like it's not legal for us to kill whales, but it's it's a legal protected right for him and his people.
0: Oh yeah, that's how you eat. That's how you eat. I ain't got no problem with it.
3: <laughs> so. I kind of come from a perspective of I am very much a animal rights person. I really I I'm studying pre-veterinary medicine like I'm I am dedicating my life to helping animals. Um but I also have I'm of the opinion that when it comes to situations like these, like if it's imperative for your people to eat and that's how you eat, then like it's acceptable, you know. And uh, I feel like he should not have been harassed for that just because that is how traditionally his, him and his family and his people eat. Um, and so even though I'm not a huge fan of the killing of animals, then it's, it's still um, acceptable. Okay, all right, thank you.
0: So, I mean, I really love this question because it should really push us, everybody in the audience to think about uh, positionality and how we can speak to an issue or any topic, right? I wouldn't call an issue, a topic. Um, If you think about from one instance, if the people who are committing the harassment towards Chris, if it's out of privilege, if it's out of access and ability to pursue nutrition through, I would say, quote unquote, regular means, right? So you can do your own shopping, you can process like, you know, humanely or, you know, you know, I don't know if you have that word, but thinking about from that perspective versus the context in which the killing of this, well, the hunting for for sustenance—that's the word for for yeah. for nourishment—and also our lack of understanding. Like, it's such a privileged position that I don't even we don't even know that this is a protected practice for for this group of people. Because I mean, look at the environment where they have to hunt this animals for food and for other byproducts for the community. So, I mean, to me, that's the first word that came up is just positionality and uh, privilege to access. Um, but I cannot imagine having to literally depend on hunting. Like if you think about hunting here in Texas, right? Yeah, if you're hunting deer or like stuff like that, yeah, it can be, you know, it can impact, you know, your 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 balance and your your monies and your food and it's fresher and those all these things, but it is for a different purpose, and it, it you know I mean if it can feed a, 16 folks or a village or whatever it may be that, to me that's what it came up. So this is a really good question. That's where he sent me, and I hope that it is sending everybody else to really ask like what are the nuances that make the distinction between the two cases. So.
2: Thank you for that. Thank you. Because I mean, for comparison's sake, um, I was reading one article when preparing for this that lists the price for Doritos on one of the reservations for $11 a bag. Doritos, $11 a bag. When we talk about the difference in access to resources in some of these communities, I mean, when you're talking about Alaska, which is where this young man is located, there's already a price difference. I don't know if y'all are familiar, but in Alaska and Hawaii, everything is substantially more expensive. But additionally, when you're in communities that are so far cut off from others, which is often the case for communities of indigenous folks, sometimes you can even have a higher price differential, um, whether they're reservation communities, tribal land communities, or just communities with high, high populations of indigenous folks who happen to be extremely rural or extremely rural communi- communities in general, which some of y'all may have experienced on your own. And the folks who live in that particular community, which you can Google this young man and you'll find quite a lot on him um, because he was digitally harassed quite extremely, it's very clear that without this kind of hunting, they would not survive. Like they, they state it quite blatantly. So positionality is is, is what I'm hoping for evoking because while hunting is a pastime for most folks in Texas and can support and supplement our diet, it's not required. Do we have any other thoughts, ideas? um i was going to bring up the point
4: that um i always knew people growing up that hunted like for like trophies and things like that and more for the sport of it rather than like the sustenance aspect and that that goes kind of along with what turbo said is sometimes i think when we view things like this and maybe even the people who contributed to maybe that digital harassment that there was, that, that was coming from a place of just not understanding the difference between those two things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is very different than that dentist who killed the lion, right? Um, that's probably an old reference, but absolutely. So I wanted to share some things with y'all um, that are kind of related to these issues, address some of these issues. Um, I have links here, but I actually went ahead and pulled them all up in another another browser so that we can take a look at them because I don't want to just show you all links that's not interesting or memorable, um, but I'll show you the links real quick so that the screen share can capture them and they'll exist in the video, um, and then I'm going to go ahead and exit out of here real quick and go pull over to this. So um, part of the reason that I wanted to show y'all these is because we'll start with the really basic one. The National Alliance to End Homelessness is just a really fantastic resource. I encourage you to check it out. It's not strictly- Emily,
4: Mm -hmm. I'm going to go ahead and interrupt you. We cannot see if you're currently screen sharing
2: something else. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Okay. I just wanted to let you know that. (laughs) Brilliant. Let me see. That's why. Here we go. How about now? We got it? Yes, now okay. we can see. <laughs> awesome, Brilliant. You. Okay, so this is the National Alliance to End Homelessness. It's just got a bunch of different resources. It's not strictly centered on Indigenous folks, but it does have resources that are separated out by different ethnic and racial groups, different resources for different subpopulations and different information and resources. Highly recommend, easy to find, endhomelessness.org. This one right here, National Council on Urban Indian Health, I wanted to share this with you, um, partially just to address the fact that there's some really great resources here specifically dealing with Indigenous homelessness. These are pre-recorded sessions. I have them linked and I'm happy to share some copies of my slides or copies of the resources after this session. This is really cool. So when I was talking about um, traditional native foods and indigenous foods, I wanted to actually share some resources to learn about indigenous foods. So this is the North American traditional indigenous Foods system site um, founded by the James Beard award-winning winners, the Sioux Chef, highly encouraged. This one here is in partnership with the University of Arkansas Indigenous Food and Agricultural Initiative, putting tribal sovereignty in food sovereignty. It's really fascinating, and then the next one—kind of a shout out to our very own Suzanne McDonald, <laughs> University of Colorado. Uh, I think it's the wrong University of Colorado though. First Peoples Worldwide, very interesting initiative, and Indigit Kitchen. This one's really cool. Um, they they only cook with indigenous ingredients you'll notice that a lot of these do not strictly address the issues directly. And again, that's because a lot of these populations aren't strictly tracked, like there's not a lot of information devoted directly to them. And interestingly enough, a lot of the resources devoted to them are uh, community-based. So there are homeless some centers for indigenous folks located in the twin cities right outside of Minnesota, and there's one right here. There's not a whole lot of national organizing done, so I encourage you to look for resources connected to your towns, your areas. There are not many in our town, in our area, unfortunately. Otherwise, I would be happy to share them with you. So I'm going to bring up a very last slide for you. It's just a QR code with our evaluation. And then if y'all have any other questions, please let me know. But thank you all so much. If you have questions or would like to learn more about this, there's plenty of information available online. You just have to know how to do your research and do your digging. And if you have questions about research, the librarians at the Dick Smith Library are fantastic. Well, it doesn't seem like there are any questions, Emily. And I do so appreciate y'all being here today. Um, if you're interested in learning more about Indigenous folks in general, a much more expert expert will be here tonight. Well, we'll be presenting here tonight um, from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. in the ballrooms. We'd love to have you. We'll be talking about the power of storytelling Thank you all so much for taking part today, Um, I appreciate your honesty and your questions. If you are interested in this topic, I will be talking more about food and shelter insecurity and how it impacts others. um, In a presentation on food and insecurity, excuse me, I have an alarm and LGBTQIA folks Friday at noon email me for more information. Y'all have a great day and please eat well.
1: All right, folks, that concludes November's live diversity dialogue from Tarleton State University's Office of Diversity, Inclusion and International Programs. Again, that was over food insecurity and its relation with indigenous folks. I think this is a very important topic to discuss and a very important people group to hear from, especially around this time of year, due to a lot of oppression and just erasure of this culture that we need to really think about. I would love to bring you guys some more information about Indigenous folks. Of course, every nation has different cultures and traditions um, in it. And of course, there's also that share kind of experience on reservations, which I really would like to dive into and get you guys some more information about. And if you guys have any topics specifically about Indigenous folks, any questions, please don't hesitate to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Planet 1007 and private message, direct message us, and we'll, we'll try to answer those questions, okay? Thank you guys so much for listening and being a part of this very important discussion that we have going on. Until next time, folks, be safe out there and take care. a tarleton radio network podcast with production from me taylor welch and me carissa cole find more great shows by searching tarleton radio network wherever you get your
4: podcast